Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Awakening. All right, well, if you're new, we are in the middle of studying one of the most fascinating books in the entire Bible, the book of Revelation. Now, by now, you probably know, if you have been here any length of time, that the word revelation means to reveal. And so in this book, God has chosen to reveal to us how the world will end as we know it. And so the man that God picked uh, for this revelation was the Apostle John. You remember in chapter four, uh, one and two, uh, uh, the Lord snatched up John, spiritually speaking, up into heaven, and he gave John a number of um, apocalyptic visions. And so John uh, here is in heaven. He's there by the, in spirit, and he's receiving these end-time visions from the Lord. And so during the last two weeks, we studied John's vision of what's called the seal judgments. And so before Jesus Christ literally comes back to this earth to take back what rightfully belongs to him, before he boots out the usurper, Satan, who stole dominance over the earth from Adam and Eve during the fall of creation, when Jesus literally comes back to this earth, he is going to, before he does, he's going to, from heaven, open up seven seals, seven seal judgments that are gonna rain down on a wicked and rebellious world. And so by way of review, the first seal, when that was popped open, that, rev- that will reveal in the future, the tribulation period, the Antichrist who's gonna come as a deceiver, a charmer, and he's going to deceive the world with his empty promises of peace. So first seal was global peace. That's not gonna last because it's a sham. And so that's gonna be followed by the opening of the second seal, which is global warfare. And because of our modern day weaponry, we know that there's gonna be a lot of bloodshed on the earth as a result of that warfare. Third seal of what follows warfare is a global famine. Famine naturally results from war. Why? Because during times of war, um, uh, food supplies are cut off, transportation of food is, is diminished, and so there's a, gonna be a worldwide famine. And then came the fourth seal, which is global death, and I thought it was interesting when we studied this that John, as he's having this vision, said he saw Hades following death, spiritual death following physical death. Why does John see this? Because God wants every lost person on earth to know that if you die in your sins, your life on earth physically is not the only life um, that ceases to exist. In other words, you're not gonna just die and cease to exist or be annihilated. You have an immortal soul and Hades always follows physical death. Spiritual death always follows physical death. So if you're here today and you don't know where you stand with God, I have one word for you, Jesus. <laughs> Grab hold of him because his blood can forgive you and bring you into spiritual life. The fifth seal is gonna, in the future, reveal the souls of martyrs under the altar up in heaven, and what are they doing? Uh, when, when God opens the fifth seal, Christ opens the fifth seal, we see these martyrs and they're crying out for God to bring justice on the heads of those who murdered them during the tribulation. 
And then we saw the sixth seal. When that seal's opened up in the future, it's gonna bring geological and astronomical upheavals upon the world. The seventh seal is not gonna be opened until chapter eight. And so these seal judgments that are coming are gonna cause complete mayhem upon the earth as God's wrath is poured out on mankind. And so now we come to chapter seven. And thank God we get a little bit, a little bit of a break here. I believe in this chapter the rewind button is hit and we're taken back to the first half of the tribulation. And so in this chapter today, chapter seven, there's a pause in all the mayhem. There's a break from all the judgments and there's a chance for us to kind of take our breath. In this chapter, chapter seven, again, one of my favorite, but in this chapter we see this beautiful truth if you're taking notes. And that is in the midst of his wrath, God will display his mercy. How many of you guys are thankful for that? Right? And so one of the songs that I've been listening to this week in my personal devotions, and I encourage you, if you don't uh, uh, incorporate worship in your devotions, do that. If your devotions are dry and stale and you feel like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and, and bouncing off, incorporate worship into your time. And so I listen to songs, and the, um, the main song that I've been listening to this week is called uh, Kyrie Eleison by Chris Tomlin. Kyrie eleison is simply a Greek phrase, an ancient phrase that means Lord have mercy. And so as we see our world becoming more wicked and more depraved, as we see our generation becoming more like Noah's generation, where every thought of the intention of man's heart was only evil continually, as we see our world spiraling um, down and down and further far further and farther away from God. Hey, is the cry of our hearts, as we see all this wickedness, is the cry of our hearts as, God, as God's people supposed to be, Lord, just damn them all to hell? Is that the cry of our hearts? I hope not. No, as we see the world becoming more and more depraved, the cry of our hearts as the people of God should be, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Because how many of you guys realize that apart from God's mercy, we all would be damned? You guys realize that? You, if you don't, you got to, because otherwise you'll become a pious Christian who thinks that you're better than anybody else and you'll look down your pious nose at a world that needs Jesus Christ. They don't need your condemnation. They don't need my condemnation. They need to see the love and the mercy and the grace of God flowing through us to them even while they're still in their sins. That's, that's what we should be doing as a church. We should not be doing this, shame on you. We should realize that in our BC days, we were doing the same thing, for some of us, even worse things. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. But thank God we have a hero, a rescuer, Jesus Christ, who left the eternal Son of God, the great I am, the self-existent one, added to his divine nature, a human nature, and he came to live among us, and he hung on a cross, and he paid that penalty. He was executed for you. He was executed for me. He rose again the third day, and now he says, if you'll turn to me in repentance and faith, I will forgive you. In my wrath, 
I will display my mercy, but you need to come to me. The prophet Habakkuk said in Habakkuk 3.2, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of your years. In the midst of the years, make it known. Now listen to this. This is 600 BC. This is the prayer of the prophet. About 2,600 years ago. He says, Lord, in your wrath, remember your mercy. And that's what this chapter is all about, chapter seven. And so let's pick it up now in verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending, this must have been a beautiful sight. Verse two, ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal, you may wanna underline the seal, of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, how many church family? 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so John's up in heaven, he's having these apocalyptic visions and they're continuing and now what does he see? He sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now of course this is metaphoric language. God understands that the, that the world, God better than anybody understands the world is round. In fact, 700 years before Christ, the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 40 verse 22 that the Lord is enthroned above the circle of the earth. God knows the world is round. He's speaking metaphorically here. And by the way, the word corners can be translated quarters. And so John has this vision of four angels standing in the four quarters, north, south, east, west of the earth. What are the four angels doing? They're holding back the wind. Holding back the wind. Now, when you look at certain passages in the Bible, you see that sometimes the word wind is used as a metaphor for God's judgment, right? If you weep the wind, I'm sorry, if you sow the wind, you're gonna reap the whirlwind. Talking about the, the judgment of God. And we see that in Hosea and other passages in the Bible. And so at this point in the tribulation, where we are right now, four angels, are, I want you to picture them, are, are temporarily holding back the judgment of God from being unleashed upon the world. Now, when we get to chapter eight, we're gonna see four angels and they're getting ready to blow four trumpets. The four, there are actually seven trumpet judgments, but in chapter eight, we're gonna see the first four trumpet judgments. And when we get there, we're gonna find out that those first four trumpet judgments are gonna bring all kinds of geological, ecological, and astronomical disturbances that are going to negatively affect the continents, the oceans, the rivers, and even our solar system. Okay, so more wrath and more judgment is coming in chapter eight. So if you equate, again, picture the angels holding back the, the winds of God's judgment. If you equate those four winds with the four trumpet judgments, I shouldn't do this because it's actually a, a, a horn, right? It's, it's, a, it's a ram's horn, not a, a trumpet. So when you equate these winds 
with the, the four trumpet judgments that are coming in chapter eight, then what's happening here is that these four angels are holding back all these astronomical, ecological, geological judgments from coming until something very important happens. Okay, what's gonna happen here in chapter seven? If you're taking notes, here's what has to happen. Before God's judgment will be unleashed, his 144,000 servants will be sealed and protected. Sealed and protected. In ancient times, a king would seal a royal document by pressing his signet ring into the melted wax that secured that document. And the, the king's royal seal showed that the document was protected by the power of the throne. Likewise, during the tribulation, when these 144,000 servants of God are sealed in their foreheads, they will be protected by the power of the throne, God's throne. And what's amazing to me, and I taught this five years ago, but what's amazing to me is I looked uh, once again at this chapter and read some commentaries, is that these 144,000 are gonna be protected by God throughout the tribulation period. In other words, as millions and millions of people are dying from all the cataclysmic judgments that are coming upon the world, the 144,000 servants of God are going to remain unscathed. They're gonna remain unharmed. They're gonna make it alive all the way to the end of the tribulation when the Lord Jesus Christ literally comes back to the earth. And the next scene that we see in Revelation 14 is the 144,000 are standing with Christ victoriously on Mount Zion at the beginning of the kingdom age or the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And so what is this seal in their foreheads gonna say? Here it is, Revelation 14.1. John says, then I looked and behold on Mount what? Okay, that's synonymous with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of God, and that's the city where Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom. And so John sees this, he sees the future. And I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. Who's the lamb, church family? And with him, 144,000, note this, who had his name, that's the name of Jesus, and his father's name, written on their foreheads. And so the 144,000 are gonna be sealed with the names of the Father and the Son. I think it's really interesting, I was reading Spurgeon uh, earlier this week, but I think it's really interesting, uh, he alluded to this, that the name Baptist is not gonna be on these guys' heads. The name Methodist is not gonna be on these guys' heads. Or Lutheran, or Catholic, or whatever, in fact, I know this will be a shock for some of you. Their, the name Calvary Chapel will not be on their heads, okay? It'll be the name of the Father and the name of the Son written on their foreheads, and the power of the Holy Spirit will fill them to overflowing during the tribulation. And so, as followers of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, our primary identification is not with our local church, as followers of Jesus Christ, our primary identification is not with the denomination that we choose to affiliate with. As followers of Jesus Christ, our primary identification should not be with some pastor or some evangelist, 
some TV preacher or Bible teacher. It should not be. As followers of Jesus Christ, our primary identification should be with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so if you are more excited about your local church, if you're more excited about some TV preacher, if you're more excited about them than you are about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you need to check your heart. We're followers of Christ. You know what my job is? My job is to hide behind the cross. My job is to point you to Jesus Christ. But you know how some of you treat me? You treat me like I'm up here and you're down here. Please stop doing that. Man, if you only knew what my wife knew, you would not treat me that way. I am your brother in Christ. Jesus is our king. Let's look at him. Let's worship him. Let's keep exalting him because the more we exalt Christ, the more people will come. But the more we exalt a man, the less people are gonna come and things get weird that way. We don't wanna be weird. All right, look at verse four. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Verse five, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, so on and so forth. Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Essachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and and Benjamin, 12,000 from all of these tribes. So who are the 144,000? Are they an elite group of Jehovah Witnesses reigning with Christ in heaven? That's what they believe. And they knock on your door on Saturday. Listen, there is a better chance that the Pope is gonna become a Baptist than the 144,000 are Jehovah Witnesses. There is a, I've heard some of you talking, about how I dress. There is a better chance of me wearing shoes that do not match my shirt (laughs) than that these 144,000 are Jehovah Witnesses. In fact, I'll even go out on the limb, even though I know you're gonna send me emails, and I will say there is a better chance that the Miami Dolphins will win the Super Bowl this year. (laughs) There's a better chance of that happening than these are Jehovah Witnesses. Now, if the Miami Dolphins win the Super Bowl, listen, I'm gonna be so happy for all of you, but I will not change my position. Okay, these are not Jehovah Witnesses. And by the way, they're not the church either. Because a lot of, or some evangelicals say, this is the church, no. The problem is people look at this passage and they insist on interpreting it allegorically. Now, we know there's metaphor, lots of metaphors in Revelation. And behind every allegory or metaphor, there is a literal truth. But this is not one of those places. What is the, one of the primary principles of hermeneutics? What is one of the primary principles of rightly dividing the word of truth, interpreting this Bible right? One of the primary principles is this. Don Stewart said it a couple months ago. When the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense lest you get nonsense. Okay? To say these are Jehovah Witnesses is nonsense. To say there's some other religious group, and there's lots of religious groups that say, we're the 144,000, it's nonsense, okay? So what is the plain sense of the passage, if you're taking notes? The 144,000 will be descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, period. You say, how do you know? Um, Because of what it says in verse 14, 
Look at it again. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of who? Israel. Please, everybody say Israel. That's who they are. Nobody else. Okay, so what does this passage tell us? This passage tells us that God is not finished with Israel. Now what's sad is that some believe, some Christians believe, that because of Israel's unfaithfulness in the past that God has divorced Israel and replaced Israel with the church and the church is going to receive all the promises that God made for Israel in the Old Testament, that the church is gonna receive those promises in some sort of spiritual sense. Nonsense. That's called replacement theology. It's a blot on the history of the church. And so the church has not replaced Israel, ladies and gentlemen, and I could you know, be a little mean today and give you a whole list of denominations or churches that believe in replacement theology. I'm not gonna do that. But I just encourage you, if you ever move away and start going to another church, you need to find out where they stand on this issue. The scriptures are clear, the church and Israel are two separate entities. God has a plan for the church right now. By the way, it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. God has a plan for the church right now and he has a plan for the nation of Israel later. And after the rapture of the church, God is going to turn his attention back to Israel. That's why in Jeremiah 30, verse seven, when Jeremiah was prophesying about the day of the Lord, the end times, he called it a time of Jacob's trouble. What's another word for Jacob? Israel. It's not a time for the church's trouble. God has not appointed us to wrath, but obtain mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. That's why in Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, when God was giving Daniel the the prophecy of the 70 weeks, Shavuot, the 77 week, the 77 year periods that he said to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who are the people of Daniel? They're called what? Israel. Daniel was a Jew, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, 70 weeks are determined for your People, even that 70th seven-year period, which we call the tribulation period. And so for centuries, people have doubted that God still has a plan for Israel. And so when the Jews revolted against Rome in AD 70, actually it was 65 to 70, but it culminated in um, Titus, the Roman general, coming into Jerusalem and destroying and burning down the temple, people no doubt said, God's done with Israel. And then later on in AD 135, under the Bar Kokhba revolt, when the Jews revolt, rebelled again, again against Rome, and they were snuffed out, and they were booted out of Jerusalem, booted out of Israel, and Israel's name was changed to Palestine, a derisive term after the, the, uh, Israel's ancient enemies, the Philistines, when they came, went out of their land and they were dispersed all across the world for over 1,800 years, theologians, church leaders, says God's done with Israel. But then a miracle occurred. In May of 1948, the modern state of Israel was reborn. Never happened before to any nation. It'll never happen again. The Jews came back to their land. 
And 69 years ago this month, they became a nation once again. What does that say? That says the stage is now set for the coming of the Lord. The stage is now set for all of his promises that he made to Israel to literally come true. Is this making sense to you guys? Do you know what it does to a Jewish person's heart when we say God is done with you and we get your promises? That's why if you ever go with me to Israel and I'll take you to the Holocaust Museum, the very first room in the Holocaust Museum has to do with Christian persecution against Jews. It's not right. And so how can God be done with Israel when he promised through Jeremiah this in the Old Testament? Thus says the Lord who gives the sun, everybody say sun, sun. for light by day and the fixed order of the moon, please say moon, and the stars for light by night. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me, how long? Forever. Okay, question ladies and gentlemen, is the sun still shining today? Yeah. Is the moon still reflecting the sun's light? Yeah, are the stars still shining? What does that mean? That means God's not finished with Israel. He's got a plan for his people. And then when you go to the New Testament, you see what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 11, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's true. The nation is blinded, but thank God there's still thousands of Jews getting saved. They're called Messianic Jews. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So one day that last Gentile is gonna get saved. And then it goes on to say, and in this way all Israel will be saved. That's the remnant of Israel alive at the second coming. As it is written, the deliverer, Messiah, Christ, Jesus, will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my what? Covenant, how many of you guys believe God's a promise keeper and not a promise breaker? Okay, so this is my covenant with them. Who's them, the church? No, he's writing to the church at Rome. And he's writing to the church at Rome about the Jews, the, the nation of Israel. There's a distinction. This will be my covenant, my promise with them when I take away their sins. And so whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, the message is clear. God is not done with Israel. And in the last seven years of history as we know it, he is going to handpick 144,000 descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's going to anoint them to do his work upon the earth. 12,000 from every tribe. Now, of course, we all know the genealogical uh, records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So we don't know who belongs to the tribe of Reuben or Gad or Asher or Naphtali. But hey, why is that a problem? We don't know, but who knows? God knows. He has infinite knowledge. He knows who these people are. He's gonna pick them, save them, anoint them, and turn them loose. And you're gonna have 144,000 Apostle Pauls running around sharing the gospel in the last seven years. Look at verse nine. So now the scene changes from earth to heaven. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From how many nations? Every nation. You see the heart of God here? You see how he remembers his mercy in the middle of his wrath? 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in what color robes? We always see that over and over. It's the indicative of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, just just think logically about this. Because we see a great multitude wearing white robes in heaven in verse nine, and verse nine follows verses four through eight, which speaks about the sealing of the 144,000, what does that mean? That means that the 144,000 are gonna be Jewish evangelists who are gonna proclaim the gospel throughout the world. Just flows perfectly. And so, if you're taking notes, what's the result of their ministry? As a result of the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, a great awakening is going to occur during the tribulation period. So here's the, here's the as you interpret these verses in the context, okay, leave them in their context, here's the flow. God handpicks 12,000 from all the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000. He saves them, anoints them. They begin to share the gospel. Millions of people are saved from every nation. And then what happens to them, they start sharing the gospel. They're hunted down. They're murdered by the forces of the Antichrist. Many of them are killed in the cataclysmic judgments during the tribulation period, and all of a sudden they die. To be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. And now in verse 9, we see there they are from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and they're worshiping the lamb in their white robes, holding palm branches. Does this make sense to you guys? There will be a great awakening during the tribulation period, even though the church is in heaven. And so greater than the advance of Christianity during the first century, led by Peter and Paul. Greater even than the reformation of the church in the 16th century, led by guys like Luther and Calvin. Greater than the first great awakening of the 18th century, led by guys like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Greater than the great awakening, the second great awakening in the 19th century, led by Charles Finney and guys like Peter Cartwright. Greater than all those prior spiritual awakenings is gonna be this great awakening in Revelation chapter seven that's gonna happen as a result of the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. A great awakening. Now, I believe, personally, there's a difference between a revival and a spiritual awakening. Follow me on this, please. I believe a revival has to do with believers and a spiritual awakening has to do with unbelievers. A revival occurs when casual Christians become committed Christians. A spiritual awakening occurs when lost people who are dead in their trespasses and sins hear the gospel and get saved by the blood of Jesus. A revival is for the church. A spiritual awakening is for the community. And that's why I believe you and I need to pray this prayer a lot. Lord, we pray for a revival in our church and we pray for a spiritual awakening in our community. Because how many of you guys understand it's not by our might or power, it's by God's spirit, says the Lord.
If we're gonna see a revival in our church, if we're gonna see a spiritual awakening in the community, it's gonna happen through repentance and prayer. You say, why is that prayer so important? Because ladies and gentlemen, if a genuine revival happened at Calvary PSL, I believe that would spill over and cause an awakening in the Treasure Coast. You say, but pastor, look, the church is growing. Look at what God's doing. I know the church is growing. I know what God is doing, but, but we need revival in this church. We need casual Christians to stop being casual about their faith and literally become committed Christians for Jesus Christ. And when that happens, I believe it'll spark an awakening. We need people who are going through religious motions, who are not right with God, out of fellowship with God, out of fellowship with their neighbor. We need them to repent and get right with the Lord. And when that happens, the power of God will fall and it'll spark an awakening. Now, what's true here locally is true in every area around America. It's true for our nation as a whole. If Christians around America and every state would begin to get right with God and right with their neighbor, I believe we'd see another great awakening in our nation. If you're with me, can you say amen here? Amen. Okay, so this is where some of you need to put the wall down, okay? If Christians across America repented of sins like gossip, slander, dishonesty, pornography, fornication, because you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you're not married, adultery, because you're breaking the covenant that you made with your spouse by sneaking around with someone else. Drunkenness. If Christians around America would really get right with people they've wronged, humble themselves, start loving their neighbor as themselves, if they would get right with the Lord, confess their sins, and begin to walk in a close relationship with him, I'll ask you, what do you think would happen? There'd be a great awakening in this nation. It's the answers in the church, God's people. Because what's happening is, is God's always wanted there to be revival. The problem is that his people are saying, no, I'd rather live for myself. No, I'd rather be comfortable. No, I'd rather do my will, not your will. No, that guy's a jerk, and that's why I wronged him, and there's no way I'm ever gonna talk to that person again. No, I don't need to keep short accounts with God. No, I don't really need to walk in a close relationship with the Lord. I'm fine, leave me alone. I'll come to church once a month. I'll do the religious thing. Just leave me alone. And what does that do? That hinders the power of God from flowing through his church into the community. Does this make sense to you guys? Evangelist Gypsy Smith from England, he used to preach crusades in England and America. Someone said, how do you get revival? He said, go home, take a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, and pray, God, revive everything in this circle. Because that's where it starts. It starts with you, and it starts with me. And so if you're here today, and your relationship with, with, your relationship with Jesus has grown cold, 
The question I have for you is, will you humble yourself? Will you put that wall down? If there's someone that you wronged, will you just go to them and get right? Say you're sorry? You say, you don't know what they did to me. They're a panda neck. You're a panda neck too. And so am I. We're all big pains in the neck. We're all saved by God's grace. Okay, because here's what happens. We have a superior attitude. I'm better than them, and so I don't need to go to them. And God's like, man, I want to send revival. I want to send a spiritual awakening, but I can't do it through you. You're a dirty vessel. Will you just humble yourself and go to that person? And here's the thing. They may get ugly. They may yell at you. They may curse you out, but at least you did your part. Will you humble yourself and confess your sins and get right with the Lord? I don't believe any Christian, and some of you disagree with me, and that's fine, but I don't believe any Christian, true, saved, born-again child of God can lose their salvation. But you can lose your fellowship with the Lord. And the way you get that fellowship back is through repentance and through faith. And so, here we have these great multitude from the tribulation period, they're standing in white robes and they're holding palm branches. Why palm branches at the end of verse nine? Well, you remember when the, when the Jews waved their palm branches and said, Hosanna to Jesus? Well, the, the word Hosanna means save now. They were celebrating salvation that they wanted to come through the Messiah. They wanted a political salvation, not spiritual salvation. But these people, they know they're in heaven. They receive spiritual salvation and they've got these palm branches and these white robes and they're they're part of a party in heaven. Look at verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, this is what these people were saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the four elders, of the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, okay, so one of the elders walks up to John, who are these people clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John says, sir, you know. In other words, John had no clue. And by the way, he's an apostle in the church. And so if all these people in verse nine are the church, John would have known it the church is already in heaven. And he said, the elder said to him, these are the ones coming out of the what? Last three and a half years. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. How do people get saved during the tribulation? The same way people have gotten saved in every dispensation or age, by faith in Christ. It's never changed, ladies and gentlemen. Faith, salvation has never been by works. It's always been by faith. And these people, as a result of the witness of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, put their faith in Christ and their sins were washed in the blood. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God, and I love this in verse 15, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Aren't you glad we're not gonna be laying on clouds for all eternity, bored out of our minds. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall, they came out of great tribulation, horrible, horrible situation, but look at, look, look at the promise of verse 16. They shall hunger no more, 
neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and he'll be their shepherd. He'll guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so what a difference between what these hundred, these, this great multitude in verse nine, what a difference between what they will experience on earth during the tribulation period and what they will experience in heaven. You see, on earth, they're hungry and they're thirsty, why? Because, we'll get to it in Revelation 13, if you don't receive the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell. So you're gonna be hungry, you're gonna be thirsty. On earth, they experience not just hunger and thirst, but persecution. They share their faith, they're hunted down, they're murdered. But in heaven, what are they experiencing? Jesus, the good shepherd, leading them to living water, wiping, wiping away all tears from their eyes. If you're thankful for your good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and his grace in your life, as you stand to your feet, can you just let him know, maybe while clapping your hands or saying amen or something, can you just let him know how thankful we are for him? Can you let him know how grateful you are for his grace and mercy in, in your life? Can you have that attitude of gratitude today that you don't have to go to hell and all your sins can be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? He's a good shepherd. He's the answer, he's our hero. He's our message, he's who we point to. And so as you go today, point people to Jesus. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm New Here, then Knowing Christ.